Hello ladies and gentlemen and welcome to a very special St. Patrick's Day episode of Straight Talking English, SDR8 Talk English, on Twitter, straighttalkingenglish.com. I am recording this in the middle of the coronavirus panic. So, if you are stuck at home when you should be teaching or learning or doing your job, whatever your job is, check out straighttalkingenglish.com. I've got a back catalogue of all my podcasts if you want to catch up with some terrible jokes and lots of very, very well-researched history and context. Patreon slash Straight Talking English. If you like what I do, you can support the show for as little as a pound a month. If you go on Amazon and you search up the full context series, we've got four up there. Christmas Carol, Jekyll and Hyde of Mice and Men and Sign of Four. Fifth book, which will be the Power and Conflict AQA poems, will be with you... Oh, I'm hoping by my birthday at the end of April, wish me luck. If I have to self-isolate, it's going to be finished a lot earlier than that. YouTube as well, search up Straight Talking English. Uh, We've got four videos up so far, and the one I'm going to be recording this week is Neutral Tones and or Farmer's Bride. Can't wait to share that one with you, by the way. So... On to business, on to business, because this is a very special Paddy's Day episode. It occurred to me, when I was doing the research for Seamus Heaney, and I really nearly said Shane McGowan, but that's the guy from the Pogues, and I really, really can't mix them up. When I was doing the research for Seamus Heaney and looking into the history of Ireland, I realised that despite the fact I have Irish roots and the Ireland is pretty close to where I live in South London, I mean as the crow flies it's not that far, I know basically nothing about the history of Ireland and trying to catch you guys up on Seamus Heaney's entire culture in like half an hour I was like I am not going to be able to do this. So, I called up my friend Holly Zone, aka Holly Cruz. She is a performance historian who does funzing talks in Manchester and London. Holly Zone History is her Facebook page, and she is absolutely tremendous. I asked Holly if she could help us out by giving us a rundown of the history of Ireland. So, take it away, Holly. We've got 30 minutes to get the good people of Straight Talking English up to speed on the history of Ireland. Hello, my name is Holly Cruz. I'm a performance historian and I'm here to answer the question, is it possible to sum up the history of Ireland in 30 minutes? Maybe. We're going to find out. Now, if you're Irish yourself, you're probably thinking, Yeah, that's a big task. You are not going to fit the history of Ireland into 30 minutes. And if you're English, you're probably thinking, I know nothing of the history of Ireland. Can you fit this all into 30 minutes, please? We know that humans have had a presence in Ireland since at least 8000 BC. We have evidence of hunter-gatherers from around that time. But its real history, the history that most people would think of, probably starts at around 600 BC, when the Celts arrived. That's right, Ireland, the capital, some would argue, of Celtic culture, only actually been Celtic since around 600 BC, leaving the preceding five and a half thousand years as somebody else's. In fact, a lot of Ireland's biggest names have not really been that Celtic in a lot of ways. Take, for instance... St. Patrick, who was probably born in northern France, or possibly, outside that, might have been born in England. 
In fact, St. Patrick himself, though probably a real person, is a little bit on the uh, ahistorical side, seeing as there seems to be some evidence that suggests that the stories associated with Patrick might actually describe the lives of two separate individuals who may or may not have been called Patrick in either case, one of whom possibly arrived in Ireland around 432 and the other around 461 AD. We do know that missionaries at this time brought Christianity to Ireland, and we also know Ireland is not a landscape with the sort of conditions conducive to snakes breeding in large numbers, or indeed any numbers, meaning that for all that we love a good story about St. Patrick driving the snakes out of Ireland, they probably weren't any there when he arrived. The arrival of Christian culture in Ireland sparked a massive explosion of culture, of learning and of riches in a lot of cases. The monasteries that grew up around the whole country were very wealthy. They were very influential. And not just influential in Ireland, they were influential across all of Europe. As Rome fell to the sackings and invasions of the Goths and various other tribes from northern Germany, it was in Ireland that Latin culture, Latin texts, Christian writings were being preserved safe over the seas from these invading barbarians, as they were called. It was in Ireland where Western culture and civilization in the middle of the first millennium was preserved. There's just one slight problem with being materially and culturally rich at this time. To be so was to attract Vikings. Yep, that's right. The raiding, plundering Norsemen, they came to visit. The first recorded Viking raid happened in around 795 AD, and the raids intensified much more in the 9th and 10th centuries, to the point where the Vikings weren't just turning up and robbing and stealing from the Irish, they were turning up and building Ireland? The Vikings themselves were actually just as likely to start trading and settling and building things as they were to burn stuff down. In Ireland itself, they built a variety of settlements. Settlements with names like Dublin and Cork and Limerick and Waterford, which, in case you're wondering, are the first, second, third and fifth largest towns in the Republic of Ireland today. The Vikings even left their imprint in the form of, well, people. Take, for instance, the surnames O'Loughlin and Higgins. These surnames are derived from the word Viking, indicating descendants of Vikings. There's also the surname Doyle, a very common and very well-known Irish surname. It comes from the words meaning dark foreigner, which apparently indicated Danish Vikings, who had darker hair than their more blonde Norwegian brethren. Now, the Celts themselves were not going to take all of this lying down, and they resisted. They fought back against the Vikings, and in 1014, Brian Baru, the great hero, expelled the Vikings finally and for good at the Battle of Clontarf. This resulted in the new setup in Ireland, in which a series of independent kingdoms would come together and choose a high king to rule over all of them. This system lasted for around 150 or so years and then came crashing down in pretty much the typical style of the time, which was somebody got a bee in their bonnet about things not going their way. In this case, this was Dermot, the king of Leinster, who was expelled from Ireland by Rory, the High King. Dermot sulked away to England and went and asked Henry II, king of England at the time, for a bit of help in getting his throne back. 
Henry nodded and went, yes, I will absolutely definitely get your throne back. I have no designs whatsoever on conquering Ireland for myself, which was fibs. Henry decided to get an official sanction for his plan by going to the Pope and saying, hey, Pope, any chance I could uh, do a little invasion of Ireland on behalf of England? And the Pope, Adrian IV, the only English Pope in history, mysteriously said, yeah, that sounds great. I have no objection to England invading Ireland. In 1169 and 1170, a series of invasions took place as the English, led by Richard de Clare, Earl of Pembroke, also known as Strongbow, and Dermot, his father-in-law, yeah, that's right, keep it in the family, kids, they successfully invaded Dublin and conquered it. They also conquered the area around Dublin, which was known as the Pale, and they also conquered basically nothing else. The Irish outside the Pale proved a little too difficult to subdue. And if you've ever heard the phrase beyond the pale, meaning some behaviour that's inappropriate or terrible, this is where that comes from. The idea was that the Irish themselves outside of Dublin were wild and uncivilised monsters who painted themselves blue and kept repelling the English's very well-meaning, honestly, attempts to subdue the entire country. An unsteady situation grew in which the Irish were essentially allowed to pass their own laws and do as they pleased, but officially the English were rubber stamping everything and approving it, although the actual amount of hands-on behaviour the English partook of is quite minimal in some cases. They certainly built up Dublin because that was the part of Ireland that they owned and it was part of Ireland they deemed valuable because it was a port and it was quite well positioned. Now, this all persisted with, you know, on and off rebellions. The Irish were not exactly taking the whole thing lying down, but they couldn't retake the Pale, and the English weren't really trying to take the rest of Ireland. Until the 16th century, when, after one rebellion too many, the King of England, Henry VIII, decided that he just about had enough of the whole Irish situation, and declared himself King of Ireland, as well as King of England and Wales and a few other places. This meant, though, that he wanted to stamp his authority a bit more strongly, and it was also complicated by Henry VIII's main contribution to the historical record, the Reformation, in which he split the Church of England from the Catholic Church in Rome and brought Protestantism to England, Wales, and an attempt, albeit initially fairly mild, to bring it to Ireland. It was actually under his daughter, Elizabeth I, that the real Protestant colonisation of Ireland began. It was under her that the decisions were made to settle parts of the country, which in this case meant Ulster. Now, I don't know about you, but I have a feeling we're going to come back to the topic of Ulster and Protestants in Ulster in more detail a bit later on. English tactics in this period were particularly nefarious. They would have a habit of sending people over, people who included the likes of Sir Walter Raleigh, famous English explorer and military hero. They would go to Ireland, provoke rebellion amongst Catholic communities, crush said rebellion in the name of the king and Protestantism, and then say afterwards, well, they rebelled, they clearly can't rule themselves. Do you know what you should do? You should put me in charge of this piece of land. I am very Protestant. I should do that. 
Elizabeth I's successors also turned their attention to Ireland, albeit different reasons. James I continued the Protestant colonisation of parts of Ireland, sending over a large number of Protestants from Scotland in particular to bring a Presbyterian, austere version of Protestantism to the northern counties. His son, Charles I, yeah, he's the one who got involved in the so-called English Civil War, a civil war which was in part provoked by an outbreak of massive rebellion in Ireland which Charles just couldn't seem to put down, and which Charles eventually ended up recruiting to his own side when England spiralled out of his control. One of the factors which led to his execution was the fact that Parliament felt he couldn't be trusted not to go fetch the Irish Catholics and bring them over to England. And it's Charles I's sort of successor, who many Irish people would very happily tell you is one of history's biggest villains. That's right, it's Oliver Cromwell. Now, whatever you think you know about Oliver Cromwell, think about this from an Irish perspective. Cromwell really hated Catholics. Like, really hated Catholics. And despite the best efforts of Elizabeth and James, Ireland was still pretty darn Catholic. Cromwell's victory over Charles I in England did not automatically translate to a quelling of the rebellion in Ireland, and once the situation in England was wrapped up to Cromwell's satisfaction, he took the army over to Ireland to try and deal with the situation. Now, Cromwell's behaviour in England during the English Civil War was of its time, but not particularly barbaric. He didn't engage much, in, if at all, in what we would regard today as war crimes. The same cannot be said for his behaviour in Ireland. Specifically, the massacres at the towns of Drogheda and Wexford, in which the cities were stormed, the walls knocked down, and everybody inside subjected to a large amount of pillage and murder, turned the Catholic population even more against this austere Protestant overlord, who finally subdued the country. Cromwell's priorities after winning the English Civil War were very much focused around England and Scotland, but he did have, it is said, designs on Ireland, designs which couldn't have gone well had they actually been carried out. It's said that Cromwell intended to try and move all Catholic inhabitants of Ireland to the area west of the Shannon River, the area west of the Shannon River being the economic dead zone, an area without cities, without industry, an area in which the Catholics would have essentially lived in a backwater without any influence. He didn't put this plan into action, and he may not have been as serious as some suggest he was, but this all adds into the belief in Ireland to this day that Cromwell is one of history's biggest monsters. It's also in the 17th century that the first Irish starts to go abroad, the Irish diaspora today accounts for some tens of millions of people across a wide number of countries, but it began hundreds of years earlier. With Ireland being a country of few economic and social prospects, many Irish went abroad. One popular route was to go to the Caribbean and become what were called indentured servants. Indentured servants would sell their labour to owners, usually English, for a period of years, in this time, they were essentially treated similar to property. They weren't property, 
they were different to the slaves who were also being employed in the Caribbean around this time. The ways in which they were different included the fact that they were still considered to be legally human. They were bound by obligation to do work, but they were definitely people. Their children, regardless of when they were born, were considered to be free agents of their own will and volition. And the terms were set in their contracts, which allowed them to finish work after a certain period of time and to emancipate themselves. This differs very significantly from the transatlantic slave trade in which millions of Africans were taken to the Caribbean and forced to work in very similar conditions to the Irish indentured servants, but without hope of freedom and without the dignity of being recognised as human, no matter how desperate their situation. The 17th century was a dark, bleak century for the Irish, and it ended in another disaster. It ended with James II of England, the son of the unfortunate Charles I, losing his throne in England, being overthrown for being the last Catholic king. James's last stand took place on the 12th of July 1691, when he lost the Battle of the Boyne to the forces of William III, William of Orange, the Protestant king who overthrew him. To this day, the 12th of July is celebrated by Protestants in Northern Ireland, where it is marked with parades, often contentious parades, which are regulated these days, but for much of the 20th century, which caused large amounts of rioting and trouble between Protestant and Catholic communities in Northern Ireland. The 18th century wasn't much better in Ireland, although it did indicate the start of some interesting changes which would affect its history. In 1740-41, to 41, a famine killed around 400,000 people out of a population of 2 million. At this point, Catholics were in a fairly pitiful situation. They'd been deprived of their political power, of their economic strength. They were denied the vote, but they were culturally growing. Pride in being Irish, pride in Irish culture, in Irish song, was growing throughout the country. A more sense of identity, a more feeling of Irishness. This, of course had consequences, because in the north of the country, as a result of the colonisation of the 17th century, was a Presbyterian community. Now, this Presbyterian community was not well off. These were not rich Protestants. These were not the rich Anglican Protestants who lived in Dublin and ruled the country. They had a better economic standing than the Catholics, but they had no power. The power was with the Anglican elite, and they were often absentees. Landowners and landlords, they charged their Catholic and Protestant tenants alike, but rarely would visit. It was a source of particular irritation for Catholics over the subsequent couple of centuries that they would be forced to pay tithes, taxes, to their local Anglican priests, even though they did not attend the Anglican masses on account of being Catholic, and even though in many cases these Anglican priests were absentees themselves, they would collect the money for doing the job of being the Anglican priest in the vicinity, but they wouldn't actually set foot in Ireland if they could possibly avoid it. So, what's a poor oppressed country to do at the end of the 18th century? Well, Ireland did, well, quite a few places at the time did, took inspiration from the French Revolution, took inspiration from the revival in culture that the Catholics were experiencing, and took inspiration from the fact the population had doubled, up to four million, 
respectable number surviving fairly well on a mixed crop of things like wheat and corn if you were a little bit better off and potatoes if you weren't. This miracle food had come over from the Americas and was fueling the population growth. In particular, it was fueling the ability of the Irish to subdivide their lands between their children. It was a cultural tradition over there that rather than everything be inherited by the eldest, it would be divided as far as possible amongst all the children. At this point, with more and more children surviving, plots of land were starting to get quite small, but it was still not reaching any kind of critical situation. What was a critical situation was irritation with the British. The colonial overlords were not popular and not liked, and in the 1790s we get our first real uprising, or at least the first famous one, which we can attach to a modern name. That name was Theobald Wolftone, the fantastically named revolutionary leader, who, to compound perhaps some expectations, was actually a Protestant. He was a Protestant politician who in 1791 formed the Society of United Irishmen. The plan was to enact parliamentary reform, to bring about less British interference and to bring about Catholic rights. He wasn't advocating for independence for Ireland, he was advocating for a better life and a better position for Ireland within the United Kingdom. Unfortunately, just as the French Revolution was inspiring the Irish to make these demands, it was also inspiring the British to turn against everything that looked a bit like the French Revolution. So the sight of Irish people demanding more rights meant the British cracked down and cracked down hard. And the French, well, any old opportunity to try and mess around with the British, they promised help to Wolf Tone and his men, who, frustrated by their failure to get any kind of political change, decided to resort to rebellion. 50,000 Irishmen rose in desperation and 76,000 Brits were there to meet them. Between 30 and 100,000 people died. Remember, this is a population of 4 million at this point. Wolftone himself was arrested and thrown in jail where he mysteriously died before trial. He has a statue, as many great Irish heroes do in Dublin today. It is known affectionately by the locals as Tonehenge. Instead of the full emancipation and rights that the United Irishmen had hoped for, instead we got the 1800 Act of Union, which tied Ireland officially and finally, so they thought. This wasn't meant to be an entirely and finally oppressive piece of legislation. It was meant to be tied to Catholic emancipation. Unfortunately, the British Parliament at the time, not so keen on emancipating Catholics, i.e. not so keen on giving them their rights. 19th century, unfinished business, witnessed the rise of a Catholic lawyer and politician called Daniel O'Connell, not to be confused with uh, the crooner Daniel O'Donnell. Daniel O'Connell formed the Catholic Association in 1823 with the aim of getting Catholics elected as MPs, something they weren't allowed to do. By the end of the 1820s, in County Clare, Daniel O'Connell won election. He couldn't sit in the UK Parliament and he wouldn't take the oath of allegiance, which required him to swear loyalty to a Protestant religion he didn't believe in, but it meant he was able to start forcing the issue. As more and more Catholics were fighting for political power and getting elected, the British government, led by the Duke of Wellington, yes, that one, 
they decided, all right, fine. And they passed the Catholic Emancipation Act, which was a good thing, actually, for Catholics across the entirety of the UK, not just in Ireland. So you're welcome. Unfortunately, this did not solve the problems in Ireland. It especially did not solve the problems of the Catholic farmers being aggrieved at paying tithes to their absentee Protestant priests. And what became known as the Tithe War started, initially a non-violent movement, which turned violent after Catholic protests about paying tithes were broken up by thuggish mobs employed by these absentee priests who would seize livestock and other goods that the Catholics were attempting to withhold. Unfortunately, this was not resolved by the time things got really bad in Ireland. In 1843, in the United States of America, a new blight, a new disease was being noted. It was attacking potato crop. It was making its way to Europe. It was first spotted in the Netherlands, but it was in Ireland that the potato blight made its real impact. By 1845, the population of Ireland was up to 8.2 million, many of them living out in the countryside on very small parcels of land, sliced and diced by their ancestors to ensure all would inherit something. The first failure of the crop actually took place in 1845, but it wasn't that dangerous. There was still a sufficient amount of what were called seed potatoes, the small ones that you could use to grow a new crop the following year. There was still just about enough to eat. But it was the total crop failure of the potatoes in 1846 and 1848 which devastated the country. And the devastation was total. Between a million and two million people either died or emigrated in the 1840s. That's a quarter of the population in just five years. The British, yeah, well, they... Uh, they acted slowly if they were forced to act at all, which they weren't, particularly. The government didn't feel obliged to act. It put a man in charge called Charles Trevelyan, and a name that if you want to elicit a chorus of mussers and boos even in Ireland today, you can say out loud if you're feeling brave. Trevelyan's ideas included not importing grain from Britain and not putting a stop on the export of grain from Ireland. Because here's the thing. For the duration of the Great Famine on Garta Moor, Ireland was producing probably enough food to feed itself. But the grain and the corn and the wheat, that was valuable. That had economic purpose and that was being sold abroad. It was not being requisitioned and it was not being sent to the areas it was needed. They were also instituting work schemes, ways of justifying giving the Irish food in the first place, which required them to do backbreaking and often very pointless labour tasks. They weren't being put to purpose like Americans were during the Great Depression. Indeed, some of these work schemes were counterproductive, requiring more calories in effort from those involved to do the work than they were actually being given in the relief food, poor quality that it was. Trevelyan's priority? Don't harm business. In 1847, three million people were fed through soup kitchens, the cues for which allowed disease to spread more efficiently and effectively amongst the population. And by 1849, one million were in the workhouse. Remember, at the start of the 1840s, the population of Ireland had been just 8.2 million. Farmers with more than a quarter of an acre of land were not entitled to any relief, but they were not able to grow enough food to feed themselves. Lands had to be sold people lost what little they had. And those who bought it up? Rich Irish, 
and rich British. No taxes were raised in Great Britain, in England, Scotland or Wales for the relief of the Irish. And, gotta be said, the rich in Ireland also basically fails to raise any money. There was some relief, there were some charitable projects being run by some British people, but it was not enough and the government had to be cajoled and bullied and forced into doing anything. Between 1700 and today, 2020, it's estimated that between 9 and 10 million Irish people have emigrated. For context, the current population of the island of Ireland is somewhere between 4.5 and, and 5 million. Twice the population of that again have gone abroad in the last 300 years. Your host talking right now? The product of that as well. My father left Ireland seeking work in 1972 and my mother's father left Ireland in 1922 to get away from the Civil War, which we will come to shortly. There were more uprisings in the latter half of the Victorian era, but there was also an attempt at what was called home rule, the forces of politics combining yet again, largely initially through Protestant politicians like Isaac Butt and Charles Stuart Parnell, to fight in Parliament, in the UK London Parliament, to force a Parliament in Dublin, to force the Irish to be ruled by themselves. Charles Stuart Parnell was an obstructionist. His plan was to get people elected to the UK Parliament and then obstruct all legislation, to stop it functioning like a Parliament and therefore have an impact on politics in England, Scotland and Wales. He had an association with the Land League, the descendants of those tithe wharf farmers who tried to fight against the landlords. Their demands of the Land League weren't unreasonable. Fair rent, fixity of tenure so they couldn't be evicted with no reason. These probably don't seem like unreasonable demands to the modern listener. Parnell and co did have some sympathetic ears from within the British establishment. William Gladstone, the many times British Prime Minister, attempted to put legislation through to allow Ireland to have its home rule. Unfortunately, it failed repeatedly. In 1886, it failed in the House of Commons by 30 votes. In 1893, it failed in the House of Lords. Success, on a political level, was not achieved until the period immediately before the First World War. Not that poor old Charles Stuart Parnell was able to see his triumph. In 1889, a man called Captain William O'Shea sued for divorce from his wife, Kitty O'Shea. The reason? Adultery on her part. And the man accused was Charles Stuart Parnell. The scandal brought him down. His Catholic allies would not side with him after this scandal and his Protestant supporters felt that it was better to back somebody who could unite the Irish rather than be divisive. He was disgraced and died a few years later. He didn't get to see the legislation being passed and he didn't get to see the legislation getting passed but somehow failing to make it into law because there's just this slight problem in 1914. There was something a little bit bigger than Irish independence taking up the attention of, well, not just the British, but the whole world. Now, the First World War was an interesting time in Ireland. A large number of Irishmen joined the British regiments to try and fight against the German army. And this is true also of the Second World War, which took place after Irish independence. The logic was that if the Irish showed willing and support for the British in their time of need, they would get that home rule once everything was over. And also, the quicker they could finish the war, the quicker they could have that home rule. However, not everybody agreed with this. 
and on Easter Monday 1916, some of those who did not agree took their grievance to the street. The Easter Rising was unexpected. The British didn't see it coming and most of the population of Dublin did not see it coming. A small force of revolutionaries seized key sites around the city and the British army, they responded with brutal violence. Nearly 500 people died, over half of them civilians and almost all of those from British artillery which rained down on sites such as the post office and other major buildings where the rebels had holed up. Those who were captured were subject to secret courts and executions. Indeed, within that number, two journalists and an activist were executed or murdered in the aftermath. They hadn't been directly involved, but the British seemed to be stamping down on all resistance. The Easter Rising hadn't actually been that popular at the time. As I said, a lot of Irish people wanted the First World War over as quickly as possible. But these extrajudicial trials and these unpopular death sentences turned the opinion of the populace firmly and finally against the British. The post-war voting reform took the electoral population of Ireland from 700,000 to 2 million and these people returned a landslide victory in the first post-war election for a new political party called Sinn Féin, standing for ourselves alone in Irish. Sinn Féin's MPs refused to go to London. They refused to take the oath of allegiance. They insisted on forming their own government, their own politics, a Doyle, an Irish parliament in Dublin. Unsurprisingly, the British did not react well to this and they unleashed an army onto the streets of Ireland, but not an official army. The British army was still there, but they were not the ones committing the atrocities in what became known as the independence struggle. In this period, 1919 to 1921, the Blacks and Tans, decommissioned British soldiers, were allowed out onto the street where they committed atrocities. They shot up the crowd at a Gaelic football match at Croke Park. They committed a series of murders in Cork. They were the brainchild of Winston Churchill. Go ask Irish people even today what they think of Churchill and you won't get a particularly positive opinion about him, which comes as a surprise to a lot of British people. Sadly, independence itself did not significantly improve things for the Irish. Though it was granted by 1922, the country was immediately plunged into a brutal and vicious civil war. Why was there a civil war? Well, to answer that, you have to look at the portion of Ireland that gained independence. That's right the portion, because it wasn't all 32 counties of the islands that were granted independence by the United Kingdom, it was only 26. Six of the nine counties of Ulster, one of the four provinces of Ireland alongside Munster, Leinster and Connacht, were kept by the United Kingdom. Primarily this was due to there being a large Protestant population in those six counties, although not all of the people living there were Protestant, just under half were actually Catholic. But the Protestant population there had threatened violence themselves if they were to be integrated within an independent, united Ireland, so the United Kingdom decided to keep them. Now, this was also a compromise on the part of the Irish government. They had argued for the whole 32 counties, but when told by the United Kingdom government that they could only have 26, the Irish delegation, led by politician Michael Collins, said, yeah, we'll take that. This resulted in a split in the Irish government. Eamon de Valera came out as the leader of the side demanding that Ireland should continue to fight until it had all 32 of its counties. This led 
to the Civil War. Now, in the course of the Civil War, as often happens with these, a huge amount of destruction and death, proportionately speaking, was visited upon Ireland. And by the end of it, Michael Collins, though his side were victorious, had been assassinated in an ambush. Eamon de Valera, initially jailed for his part in the war, later released, then to become the Irish Taoiseach, or Prime Minister, and later the Irish President. In fact, the two main political parties in Ireland, Fianna Foyle and Fine Gael, are descended from the two sides of this war. Fianna Foyle are the descendants of Eamon de Valera's party, and Fine Gael are the descendants of Michael Collins's side. For a long time, voting in Ireland has largely been based on who your family fought for in the Civil War, although in recent decades it started to diversify out, and most recent results of the 2020 Irish election have put Sinn Féin back in the running. They may not be the biggest party, but they are a sign that the two-party system, where Fianna Foyle or Fine Gael are usually left to form a coalition of some sort, is finally over in Ireland, after years of smaller parties like the Greens and Labour chipping away at this dominance of the big two. As for what Ireland would do for the rest of the 20th century, it becomes two stories. For an extremely brief period of time, 1921 to 1922, the 26 counties were known as Southern Ireland, and then they weren't. Please do not refer to the Republic of Ireland as Southern Ireland. That's not a thing. In fact, the most northerly point of the Republic of Ireland is in Donegal and actually is further north than the most northerly point of Northern Ireland. In fact, it was known after 1922 as the Irish Free State, still part of the British Empire and still with the British monarch as head of state. This persisted until 1949, when the Irish Prime Minister, yeah, you guessed it, it was Eamon de Valera, declared that Ireland was now an independent republic and renamed the country in English as the Republic of Ireland and in Irish as ERA. So, generally speaking, if you're speaking English, you should call it Ireland. If you want to be fancy and call it ERA, try putting the rest of your sentence into the Irish language as well. Trust me, not the easiest challenge you can face. In 1972, alongside the United Kingdom, the Republic of Ireland joined the EEC, the forerunner to the EU. Membership of the EEC and later EU, pretty darn popular in Ireland. It's caused an increase in money and investment in the country. It's helped force through changes and improvements to women's rights and various other social laws. And it's reduced the UK's influence over the Republic. It's no surprise, therefore, that today, the approval rates for the EU run at around 90% in Ireland. Any fantasies about Ireland leaving the EU that you might hear from certain people? Just that. Complete tosh. Meanwhile, in Northern Ireland, things... Well, if you know anything about Irish history, you probably know a bit about the situation in Northern Ireland. Certainly for the first few decades, things didn't go brilliantly for the Catholic population. There was a large amount of gerrymandering of ensuring that electoral systems meant that Protestants were elected even in areas which had large Catholic numbers in them. Industry was very segregated. Certain industries would only employ Protestants or only employ Catholics, and in general, the ones which employed Protestants tended to do better. 
Indeed, there were even some laws limiting what Catholics could do. It wasn't a full discrimination along the lines of apartheid legally enshrined, but it was often very de facto. The Catholics were made to feel like second-class citizens in a complicated environment in which a large portion of the Protestant community were also strongly working class and not particularly well off. By the late 1960s, inspired by the civil rights movements of Martin Luther King and the African Americans, the Catholics in Ireland started to take to the streets to demand, you know, equality. These marches were actually met by violence by the Protestant community and then later by the UK army, which was initially sent to Northern Ireland to protect the Catholics from the Protestants, but soon found itself siding more and more with the Protestants. At this time, political leaders like Ian Paisley were prone to venting anti-Catholic sentiment. And in 1971, a policy of internment, locking up political Catholics and those suspected of more violent activities began. On the 30th of January, 1972, a large protest march took place in Derry. The British Army met the protesters it's disputed exactly what happened. The British Army said somebody from within the crowd started firing on them. The protesters, adamant that it was a peaceful demonstration. All that can be said with absolute certainty is that 26 people were hit by British bullets that day and 14 of them were to die of their injuries, 13 on the day and one several months later. Six of those who died were 17 years old. They were just children. These events became known as Bloody Sunday, and they were very much emblematic of what would become to be known euphemistically as the Troubles, a time in which three and a half thousand people died in Northern Ireland, the United Kingdom in general, and in the Republic of Ireland. It's fascinating that we talk about this as a time of terrorism, when actually, looking in from the outside, it could be hard to distinguish from a low-level underlying civil war that lasted from the early 70s until 1998. The IRA, the Irish Republican Army, and affiliated Catholic terrorist groups attacked British police, British army, Protestant communities, politicians, both in Northern Ireland and in Britain itself. One of their victims was Lord Mountbatten, a cousin of the Queen. They also bombed the Conservative Party conference one year. On the other side, the loyalist terrorists Groups like the UVA, the Ulster Volunteer Force, and the Red Hand Defenders murdered an equally large number of civilians. In 1974, the UVF planted four car bombs in Dublin and Monaghan, killing 34 people, the largest single loss of life on any day of the Troubles. This attack was one of a number in which the British Army and the British Secret Services were said to have played a part, a contentious issue which still hasn't had its finer details ironed out to this day. Troubles lasted into the 1990s, and in 1998, the Good Friday Agreement, or Belfast Agreement as it's sometimes known, was negotiated by the British Prime Minister Tony Blair, the Irish Taoiseach Bertie Ahern, and politicians from all sides of the Northern Ireland conflict. It came about as a result of ceasefires being called by the IRA and the Loyalist terrorist groups, and the agreement required both sides to start decommissioning their weapons and commit to a peace process in which they would engage with politics, not violence. And so here we are in 2020. I've had to gloss over a heck of a lot to get this talk down to this size. 
I haven't been able to tell you about the pirate queen of the west coast of Ireland who sailed up the Thames to demand an audience with Elizabeth I. I haven't been able to tell you of the female revolutionary in the 1916 uprising, sentenced to death as her part in the uprising, but then commuted to life imprisonment because she was a woman, much to her irritation. I haven't been able to tell you about the great poet Oscar Wilde or the bootleggers brewing extremely strong and highly illegal alcoholic spirits in hidden peat bogs around the country to evade British customs officers. In fact, there's a lot I've not been able to tell you and I hope that what you've heard today is enough to give you a flavour of the history of Ireland. My name is Holly Cruz. Thank you for listening. And in case you're wondering, Cruz, it's an Irish surname. It's a Norman surname. Those were my ancestors invading Ireland with Strongbow back in the 12th century. Thank you very much, Holly. That was awesome. I am absolutely sure we will agree that in 30 minutes-ish, we have covered so much. And if you are wondering about follower, about Storm on the Island, that is going to give you that little window into what's going on for Seamus Heaney, even though he's publicly denied all of his poems are about the Troubles. And when I eventually do my Heaney episodes, there's a lot of cuss words about that. So I get to cuss you guys out on air. I'll look forward to that. Right, massive, massive thank you to Holly for giving up her time. She is Holly's Own History on Facebook. You can catch her giving funzing talks, Manchester, London, all over tremendous performer tremendous historian again massive massive thanks as ever this is straight talking english sdr8 talk english on twitter straighttalkingenglish.com for all the good stuff patreon slash straight talking english youtube search me up and have a look for some videos you can see my face doing the talking and stuff and amazon the full context series there's four out the fifth is on the way search it up they are blooming good. I will be returning to you on Friday for our regular drop. Thank you all so much for listening.